From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to a special edition of Gator Tales, Gator Greats. I'm your host, Adam Schick. When it comes to coaches, especially at the collegiate and professional levels, they tend to be easy to typecast as hard-driving and laser-focused individuals with one goal, winning. But then there are those like Becky Burley, who recently retired as the only head coach in the history of the Florida soccer program. Given the 10 years I spent doing play-by-play for her team, I had the opportunity to spend an incredible amount of time with Becky and learn so much more about her than anyone in the public would probably know, especially when it came to her passions and motivations outside the construct of the game. To be honest, I would also get frustrated that I couldn't get Becky to reveal more of herself in our interviews, but understood when you're a public figure and a high-profile coach, there are certain walls you construct to protect yourself. But with retirement comes the freedom to do and say things you previously kept private, which is why I was thrilled to finally have an interview with Becky that mirrored the conversations we would have on the road over the years, which often led to fascinating debates about philosophy and culture and so many other topics beyond sports. Whether you've followed Gator Soccer for the last quarter century or are hearing about Becky for the first time, after listening to this discussion, I think you'll agree she's a true original. So without further ado, here's my exit interview, quote-unquote, with Becky Burley, kicked off by an obvious question. What did it feel like the moment it was officially over? Well, I can tell you on Saturday night, I was really tired. I was way more tired than I thought, and I don't know if it was just like the... um you know, the emotion of like the last month or so of the season, because we had four away trips in a row. Um, And so Saturday night, it got to be around like 930. And I'm like, I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Sunday morning, I don't know. I don't think I don't know if it has completely hit me all the way yet, because if this was a normal non COVID year, we'd be done around this time anyway. And so it sort of feels a little bit normal. I think the part that doesn't feel normal is like, you know, um, at the end of the game, like talking to like pretty much every player individually, talking to the team as a group, um, you know, coming back to Gainesville and starting to tie up some loose ends, things like that. Those are the things that make me feel a little bit more like, wow, this is like really happening. Mm -hmm. When you have that, this is really happening moment. What is that? Is that give you anxiety? Does it make you (laughs) excited? Does it like, what's the, what's the, the tangible effect of that? No, I think it's exciting. It's funny. I was, um, I was walking out yesterday um, around five from the LEM with a coach that I will not name to protect the innocent. Oh man, um, <laughs> we're, off to, we're off to a bad start. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they were like, so what's it feel like to be leaving on a Friday afternoon and not having to be worried about your team? And I'm like, you know, it feels pretty good. Like I turn <laughs> my phone off at night sometimes. Like it's like kind of crazy. I'll, I'll drop someone whose name I will also not include, but a former... <laughs> SEC football coach that I know through through a family friend, when he stopped coaching, he said, I never want to go back to having to babysit a hundred something 18 to 22 year olds every single day and never knowing what am I going to get called with in the middle of the night? What, you know, there's so many, so many perils that are possible with so many people 
that are in general in a pretty irresponsible stage of their lives, that's one of those parts of coaching at, at this level at college that I don't think a lot of people fully grasp. No, I think you're right about that. I think um, I think that's probably what's going to be interesting is like what space appears or feels different when you're not responsible. In my case, for about you know 50 people when you count staff and and players. And you, I mean, I take that responsibility really seriously and you do feel responsible. I mean, literally I do not turn my phone off at night ever. I carry my phone with me everywhere. Um, I think you're going to feel like there's a lot of space available that you didn't even know was taken up. Yeah. Um, so I want to go full. This is your life right now. Oh no. Um, Because, because we can, because we can. (laughs) Um, so I, I always like to find out where coaches got the like when did the calling happen right because this is this is not a normal life to live this is you you subject yourself to a very stressful and difficult life when you go the coaching route so when when did you get your calling so to speak and and how did you know that it was what you really wanted to do that's a great question you know it's kind of funny because um when i moved to florida i was 10 i moved from massachusetts and very rural massachusetts so there was no organized sports, certainly not soccer. Um, and we moved right across the street from a soccer field. And so I was literally at that field 24 seven. I mean, every weekend, the entire day on Saturday and the entire day on Sunday. Um, and as I started playing for this little team in Tarpon Springs, Florida, um, it was kind of the same group of girls. We, we grew up together on this team and we would get new girls that would move into the area. And our coach at the time would say, Oh, you just need to connect with Becky. Like she can show you everything she you need to know. Um, she can teach you some extra stuff if you need to. She's always at the field. Um, and she's like, she's like our coach. She's like our coach on the field. And that was like when I was like 11 or 12 years old. Um, and at that point, obviously I didn't know um, that coaching was even a career. And I think- 11 is by- a very early call. I mean, most people don't get the calling at 11. <laughs> I know, I know. But- but funnily enough, um, you know, when I went to college, like I knew I really wanted to coach, but um, my parents are very practical people and they did not think that was a practical career. And so my dad's like, well, you could you could teach and coach, you know, like a high school coach and teacher. Um, and so I was like, OK, like I could see myself doing that. And um, so I majored in education and my dad was like, well, what do you want to teach? I was like English. And he's like, they never need English teachers. It's either math (laughs) or science, math or science. And I'm like, well, I hate math. So I guess it'll be science. So I majored in biology and chemistry, did the education thing on the side and um, haven't really used that very much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You mentioned your parents, uh, for those that never had a chance to to meet them, uh, they were always front and center at every single one of, of your games. Um, such incredibly supportive people. And for people that don't know, you were also, you were adopted. So I'm curious if you can talk about the role that they played in not just steering you toward a a more practical career, but just in in helping you become the coach, the leader that you ultimately did. I think my parents are the biggest single influence in my life for sure. I mean, um, obviously adopting me and, you know, that's, that's just a huge leap of faith that I think any adoptive parent takes. But I think also just I wish I wish my parents could be the parents of every player that I've ever coached because they're just so um, non-involved in terms of like anything to do with my playing career, my coaching career, and 100% just supporters. I mean, I can remember games where we played 
terribly. And I would go to dinner with my parents and my mom would be like, they played so great. And I'm like, what game were you watching? (laughs) (laughs) And it was just always like that constant support, you know, and, um, And I think that that's very much lacking in a lot of kids' lives in terms of their sports career. And I'm very um, appreciative that that's what mine was like. I I would assume then uh, that is where your unwavering positivity came (laughs) from as well. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I think it's, it's really hard to not be positive. You know, my mom was handicapped most of her adult life. She was in a wheelchair most of her adult life. And, um, my mom's mantra, like anybody who knows my mom, she would always say, well, there's people that are worse off than me, you know, and, and she was so limited in the things that she could do, but she never acted that way. And so you can't really complain when you have a parent in a wheelchair and you have the other parent who's taking care of that person for most of their adult life. So mm-hmm. with that dynamic going, um, it kind of makes you be forced into the positivity lane. <laughs> no, it's very true. Um, it's funny. I'm going to go like, I'm going to go super, super Freud here, but in a way, I mean, doesn't being a coach and leading the number of people you did, isn't that sort of like being an adoptive parent in that same way? It is. I mean, obviously you're not raising them from birth, but that time in their life when they're 18 to 22, like you said, I mean, it's just a crazy period of time in people's lives. They're, they're figuring out who they are. They're probably going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, and I think that is like a very interesting part of someone's life. And I'm glad, like, that's why I always loved college. I'm glad I was part of people's lives during that time. Hmm. For those that, that don't know, you started coaching. You were you were a head coach when you were 21. So you basically, a few weeks after finishing playing uh, at Methodist, you were called by by Barry College, which is where I am, uh, sort of where I am here in Georgia. So how how does a school, how does anyone go about hiring a 21-year-old to be a head coach of a program just out of, did you, had you put out some feelers and said, this is what I want to do? Or did they just pluck you out of no way? How did this happen? It, it was kind of a crazy story. That's why I hate when, um, when I'm at a coaching seminar and somebody says, explain your journey, because I'm like, this is not relevant to anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what happened was when I was in college, my college coach was very involved. He was the head of Region 3 ODP, Olympic Development Program, which at the time is like the big thing, the steps you took to get into the national team program. And um, when he was in charge of that, he allowed me to come along as a college player and just assist. In the beginning, I was just, you know, getting people's coffee, sometimes like warming up the team, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I grew in my coaching experience, he gave me more and more responsibilities. And um, ironically, Alan Kirkup was part of that staff as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met him. And you know, it just gave me all this experience. And then I, every summer, I didn't want to go home for the summer, um, not because I didn't love my parents, but because, you know, I just wanted a more exciting life. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so I would work camps all summer, like literally, I would try to book 10 weeks of camp, which we had 10 weeks of summer. Hmm. And um, the coach that was coaching at Barry prior to me was working the Duke soccer camp. And so we worked together, probably three years, at least um, at the Duke soccer camp. And that's how we met. So when he was leaving, Um, he said to the athletic director, Hey, I know this young coach who is, you know, really young, but at the same time has a lot more experience than you would expect of someone that age. And at that point I had just accepted a job as a grad assistant at TCU in, in Fort Worth. Um, and the TCU coach was like, you know, if you have an opportunity to interview for this job, you should, which again, blessing, um, because most people would be like, Nope, I got my assistant. I'm moving forward. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the athletic director at Barry was super progressive. He really wanted to hire a woman at the time when that was not really in vogue. Um, and he wanted to do it quickly because there was a good team returning and he wanted to do it before they left at the end of the semester. So one thing sort of led to another and I graduated in May and started at Barry in June. And at that point, I imagine your team, I mean, you would have had multiple players that were older than you, right? I mean, how did, <laughs> not that you've kept track or anything. How, I mean, what was that like? Did they, were they responsive? Did you have to sell them? Like, I don't even know how you, how you would do that. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, you know, I think what I learned through that experience, and I probably didn't learn that until later now, like reflecting back on it, but you know, the coaching dynamic, there's a power dynamic in coaching where, you know, especially as a college coach, you can pretty much, you know, demand something from a player and they have to perform that. But I couldn't do that in my role because I was the same age or younger than some of the players. So i Felt like I really developed um, coaching through influence at that young age, which I didn't—I I didn't even know I was doing at the time. Um, but it was the only way to survive in that environment. And um, you know, thankfully, those players responded to that, and I think it sort of set me up for the rest of my coaching career because I think when you can coach through influence as opposed to power, uh, you have a lot more room for upward mobility and growth because you're not relying just on your position to get things done. What, what is coaching through influence? That sounds like a, like a whole thing I, I missed a seminar on that I need to understand. <laughs> well, I think it's just the, if you think about it, like, um, okay, so I know you're a big pro sports fan. Think of NBA coaches and tell LeBron James, hey, you know, you really struggled in this game. Let's do some suicides. Like that's not going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So they have to find ways to be able to reach those players in a different way. And most of the time, I think the way they reach those players is through um, creating a situation where um, it's a win-win for both parties. And I think that's where influence comes in. Like how can you make coaching um, an influence, you know, an influential situation, but a win-win for both parties. Mm. Who, I mean, who influenced you? When you go into coach, I feel like most people say, there was, you know, X purse along the way is what is what I modeled myself after. What did you as 21 going into this? What was your your inspiration for how you were going to coach? Well, I think for one, an unusual situation was that I had a, a female high school coach, which, again, at the time was pretty rare. Um, she was the mom of one of my teammates, um, but she was a good leader. And we were a successful team in large part because of all what she poured into us. Um, you know, one of the things I remember is um, they had a house probably about three miles from the high school. And on the day after games, we used to have to run to her house and we would watch game film. And like nobody was watching game film in those days, mm -hmm. you know, and then we would she would have snacks for us. And like we, we loved it. We hated the run there. But there was a reward at the end, you know. Yeah. And so just like seeing how she ran that team. Um, and then my college coach, uh, Joe Pereira, he was a huge influence on me. I mean, he just poured into me in terms of just giving me more and more responsibility as a as a young coach um, and gave me experiences that I couldn't have bought. I mean, those were amazing experiences. But I also, um, I love to observe and read about coaches and not even just about coaches, but about management. Like I have this kind of pretty good library at this point because of all the books that I've read around management and coaching. And I, I don't know, I was just always intrigued by that. Even from a, a young age, I was always intrigued by that. Did you have any early on any like major faux pas things where you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah. we're trying to learn the ropes and it's just something just yes. didn't work or... 
two things that happened at Barry in the early years. One was um, I, we used to travel with cash in the day. You didn't have like a debit card or something. And what so is ca- tell me more about this concept of cash. <laughs> I know. So um, I, w- I had this little routine, like I would go to the business office right before the trip. And we would, I would go straight from there to the bus. And it was just like this little routine because I didn't want to be carrying around all that cash. (laughs) And so um, one time we left on a Saturday and it just never entered my mind that our business office at school would not be open on a Saturday. Mm. So, So I wake up Saturday morning and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have forgotten to get the cash. So I went to the ATM. The limit was $300 that you could take out. So then I called about... 15 of my friends and had them all come over and take out $300. <laughs> and uh, we ended up having enough money for the trip. Um, and then I paid them all back when the business office opened on Monday. Wow. I hope that was probably a lot of receipts to keep track of too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then um, when we were playing in the playoffs at Barry, um, we had to fly up to Vermont. We were playing Green Mountain College in Vermont. And um, I had the whole trip set up and everything. We're good to go. We, we land. Um, I go to pick up the rental vans and they're like, oh, you, you can't take these because you're not 25, not 25. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, seriously. So I'm like, can I speak to a manager? They're like, nope, it's company policy. So then I'm calling like my AD, we're calling everybody. So finally I called the coach of the opponent. Um, and he came over and rented the cars. For us. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you, did you win the game? We did. We did. Wow, that's, that's true. So he drove the cars for you and then you beat him. <laughs> Yes. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there were also just coaching faux pas. I mean, for sure, you know, you learn so much with coaching on the job. I, I suppose the same is true with any job, but I think with coaching, um, you know, my athletic director and the men's coach where I was, the men's coach was Brett Simon. And he went on later to be the coach at Stanford um, and Creighton and some other big D one programs. Mm-hmm. And both of them, I mean, there were times I can just remember them coming to my office and sitting on my couch and, you could tell it was time for a talk (laughs) and and, um, they just really guided me in the right direction where I could have easily made some bad decisions. So you had a lot of success at Barry because then a door opens up to, to come to Florida. I'm curious, how did that come together? Um, How did Jeremy find you and, and you know, what, what expectations did he set early on of building this new program? Well, at the time, there was just sort of this explosion of new jobs in women's soccer. It was kind of the era of everyone starting women's soccer. And um, there were a lot of opportunities out there. You know, I was colleagues with Mark Burson, who was the South Carolina men's coach. So I thought, oh, like that would be great because I know him really well. And then there was Wake Forest, who my program, my biology program at Methodist had some connection with uh, Wake Forest. We had to do a dual study thing together. So I was like, oh, I love Wake Forest. I've spent time there. And then um, I can remember LSU like really actively pursued me until I finally said like, I just, I really don't want to live in Baton Rouge. Um, (laughs) um, The shackles are off today. The shackles are off. And so, you know, I I had interviewed for a few places, um, had been offered a couple of jobs, but didn't feel like they were right fit, um, had not gotten a couple of jobs that I thought I wanted. Um, But then when Florida called, I, I, actively pursued Florida. Um, Obviously, you know, growing up in Florida, my parents were still in Florida. Um, So I actively pursued Florida. And I just remember when I came for my interview, I literally, it was a morning. And by lunch, I called um, my best friend and I was like, 
I need to see no more. If they offer me this job, I'm taking it. Wow. So it was just, you could, I could just feel it immediately. I knew once I got to Florida, that this was the place if they would have me. What, what, I mean, what gave you that feeling? Why were you so confident? You know, I think it was the people, if I'm being honest, because I had never stepped foot on Florida's campus before that interview, which was kind of crazy. I mean, in high school, I dated a guy that went to Florida, but my parents would never let me go to Florida for a weekend or anything like that with a college boy. A ton of my friends had gone to Florida, um, but I was away at school, you know, 11 hours away in North Carolina. So I had just I'd passed this exit 100 times, but never had stopped. Um, I love the campus, but I think it was really the people. It was like meeting all the other coaches. I remember I had dinner with um, Ann Dubenhag, who was the tennis coach at that time. Um, I had gone to lunch with Mary um, and some Mary Wise and some other coaches. And it just was this young vibe and this energetic vibe. And everybody um, knew that they could be successful at a place like Florida. And I think that started with the top because Jeremy was so invested in every single program. And I think when it comes to that question about like, what were Jeremy's expectations? Everybody thinks Jeremy is, you know, this hard driving boss, but I think he always was like, look, I'm going to give you the resources and it's up to you to do your thing to make it happen. And I think that there is no pressure in that because he was giving you the resources you needed to. And um, I always appreciated the fact that he was very much on board with treating all the sports equally. What were the biggest challenges in building a program from scratch and how different was that from the experience you had at Barry, where I assume the program was already intact, correct? Yeah, the program at Barry was very good. I was inheriting an ex- exceptionally good team. They had won the national championship two years prior. Wow. Um, so coming to Florida was a whole different animal for sure. And I think the biggest challenge at the beginning was not having you know, like, for example, a simple thing like hosts, when players would come visit, who who's going to be your host, because there are no soccer players to host you. Right. And, you know, to credit all the other sports here, I mean, whether it was volleyball, track, um, tennis, you know, even from like a taking people around campus, like football, like they were so amazing at making um, the recruits feel very much a part of it, despite the fact that it wasn't even their team. I mean, we had volleyball players who would host players like in their dorm, like they would spend the weekend with them. Um, the same with track, track athletes and every sport just chipped in. And I think um, that was really impressive to see, but it really made you feel like that vibe about how it was team Florida. Um, and I, but I will tell you like, I, I started a program from scratch once and I would never do it again. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but it is a beast. Like startup energy is massive. And it's, I can remember Mondays after recruiting weekends, like I would literally be at my desk and thinking, okay, like, I hope I can stay awake through lunch. You mentioned team Florida. I was going to ask you about that next, which is this sort of concept of everybody working to support each other and especially the coaches. How much of that culture was already there when you arrived and um you you can take some credit here how much do you feel like you helped drive that culture once you arrived so the year after i came you know my first year at my office was in what is now a kitchen in the administrative (laughs) offices (laughs) um a very small kitchen at that i might add um but then the lemoran opened and it was called the uec at that time um and That was amazing because we had so many coaches in one place. And for me, that was really important because it gave me access to all these amazing minds, like with a walk down the hallway. Mm -hmm. 
And I think for me, like I am a very, um, let's share type person, which I'm sure I annoyed some of the coaches at some times. <laughs> um, and it just helped me like see them day to day, how they operated or be able to go down the hall and ask them about a challenging situation that I was dealing with. And I think without that, um, it would have been very difficult for this program to be as successful as it was early. Um, part of uh, Team Florida at that time was also was Steve Spurrier. And I, I've heard so many of the stories about you and Coach Spurrier. And I'm, I'm curious if are there any you can think of now that you haven't told in a while <laughs> that would be exclusive to this podcast and, and this moment we're having right now? Um, you know, Coach Spurrier, when we shared the practice field, it, it was just always something, you know, every day because we practiced first and then they would come after. So usually they were waiting for us to get off the field before they went on. And, um, you know, to his credit, he was very in tune with what was going on with every team. Um, not just your results, but like he actually knew people on your team and um, he knew when you were playing well, he, he understood just competition and athletics in general. So it didn't have to be specific to soccer. And I think that, um, I think that was very unique as well. Um, I, I think I, I don't know where else I've told this story, but the time when he um, asked our goalkeepers to punt a football because he was struggling with the kicking game of his punters and he calls his punters over, asks our goalkeepers to um, punt a football. And, and then he's like, well, that, that's about as good as what we got right here. <laughs> you know, like those, I'm sure it made those guys feel really great. Yeah. I'm sure uh, it did. But just the fact that he would even, you know, integrate the two was pretty cool. Hmm, that's funny. Um, this, all right, this is, this is a high level question. This is going to be in stages. Okay. Okay. So, you win a national title in your fourth year, right? Expectations at that point, I'm sure, jump. And yet, you're in a sport that inherently is difficult to be totally results-driven because of the way the game is played. And, and I think about this all the time. I remember we were at the SEC tournament, and uh, I think you were about to play South Carolina, and you had played them the week before uh, and had lost. I think it was a 1-0 game. And I... And I was sitting there, I was sitting there talking to you as they were playing the game before. And I said, gosh, you just, you know, how, how are you going to beat these guys? And you said, Adam, when we played them a week ago, we had 80% possession. I said, yeah, but you lost the game. And you said, but that's not, that's not really the point though. We had 80% possession. We were the better team, even if they did just find a way to win. So long, long setup here, but essentially how difficult was it after reaching the pinnacle to meet those expectations in a sport where inherently less talented teams can find lots of ways to get results. Well, that, that is a fact about soccer. You know, there's a book, it's similar to the Moneyball book um, for soccer. And it talks about soccer being the one sport that is the most unpredictable in terms of talent versus outcome. Um, mm. And I think that's what makes soccer have such a global appeal because any country can beat another country. Any team can beat another mm -hmm. team on any day. And I know that's true in, in a lot of sports, but I think in soccer, because the margin of error is so small, there's so few goals being scored that it becomes a fact. But I think that, I think one, a funny story that happened was <laughs> that after we won the national championship, um, the next year we were playing in the second round of the NCAA tournament and we lost to a team that we had beaten um, significantly in the regular season. 
And, um, you know, I, I'm still young at this point. I'm pretty naive. And I was getting about that loss. And the guy says to me, so what do you think, you know, how do you think the administration will handle like you guys losing in the second round the year after you've won the national championship? What do you think they're going to be thinking? And I said, well, I'm thinking they're thinking there go those serious director cup points. <laughs> and so I said that out loud, which was probably not um, coach speak. <laughs> No, <laughs> and, no, and not a good answer to give publicly, but it was true. Um, but I think in the end, um, that part of our sport is the, is the challenge of it, you know, sustaining, I think it's in any sport, you know, um, you, you could ask urban Meyer, this question, you could ask anybody who has been to a national championship, like, um, the ascent on the way up the first time is difficult, but to stay there is ridiculously harder. And especially to stay there at a high level and, and you light the fire that burns you because whatever expectations you set early become the expectations. And I think that's why, you know, fan bases get so jaded with teams and coaches so quickly right now, because that's just the way our society is set up. And I think for me, the way I've tried to look at it, and it's challenging because you're getting pulled from every public forum to not go this way, but I've tried to look at it as like, how close can we get to maximizing each team's ability? And sometimes that is a national championship and sometimes that's not. And it's hard to stay there, but it's a much healthier place to be than looking at specifically just the outcome. Hmm. Uh, so you've coached a ton of great players, but I'm not going to ask you the question everybody else has, which is who is the best player? Because number one, I know you won't answer it. And number two, I don't think it's quite as interesting. What I'd like to know is over your coaching career, the players you went against that were the most challenging to plan for, to deal with when you knew you were playing this team, wow, this one's going to be really, really challenging. Oh yeah. I mean, we've, we played against some great players, you know, and talk about like mistakes, you know, um, we lost to North Carolina so many times at the beginning of our program's history um, because we played them like literally every chance we could every fall, every spring. And I remember one year I was like trying to play like the reverse psychology card. And I'm like, you know, this is not the Carolina of the past. That's not, you know, a fully loaded national team roster that became big time bulletin board material yeah. <laughs> and backfired <laughs> and backfired. Um, so there's just so many great players that we've played against. And I think, you know, one of the things um, that I've really tried to do is, is to influence, uh, especially the coaches in the SEC, to like promote each other's great players. You know, so for example of that is, you know, in the last World Cup when um, Havana Salon scored the first goal in history for um, Jamaica, but the assist was um, Kadisha Shaw, Bunny Shaw from Tennessee. And that's a pretty big deal. Like it's the country's first goal in history and two SEC players were involved in the assist and the goal and to promote Kadisha as much as I would promote Havana um, and to try and do that all the way around. So like when an SEC player signs a pro contract or has an amazing highlight, like to try and, you know, retweet that and amplify that in a way that our league um, gets the respect that it deserves, I think is something that I'm on a mission to continue. When I wrote that question, I was thinking about my answer to it, which is when we went to Portland uh, oh, and got Rapino. absolutely torched by Megan Rapino. I was like, yeah, that game really was 2-0, but it probably could have been six. I mean, yeah. she, she was a dominant player, totally dominant. 
I believe she had 80% of the possession herself in that game. I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In in terms of the the coaching side of that, uh, which coaches did you always, I don't know if I'd say relish going against, but that really got you and your staff kind of juiced because you knew the competitors and the, the tacticians that they were? Well, you know, strangely, I do not like playing against people that I'm friends with. Like that, a lot of people like that part of the game. I don't, um, I think it just, you know, I'm a competitive person, they're a competitive person. And while we're in the game, it just, you know, I don't know. I just, I would prefer to compete against someone that I don't have that kind of feeling for. Um, but in saying that, you know, I've always loved our Florida, Florida state matchups. I think Mark Recorian is one of the best in the business and it's always been an exciting game always been um, a clean game, a really well-played game. Um, one of my all-time favorite coaches you just mentioned was uh, Clive Charles at Portland. And uh, he had a, you know, died at a young age, uh, relatively young age, but he was kind of one of my coaching heroes. So, you know, to be able to be involved in a situation like that, like that's, you're kind of a little awestruck. And then Anson says, I am the only um, coach that he plays against that likes him. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's actually true or if he just says that, but I've always enjoyed um, our competitions together too. This is a question that could take up an entire series of podcasts, but so much of the, the memories I know come from being on the road and when you're building that camaraderie with the team, with the staff, with the players, when you think about 25 plus years on the road with your teams, what immediately comes to mind in terms of just memories, stories, et cetera? Well, I think the first thing I will say is um, the key to my longevity in coaching is the ability I have to sleep on a bus. (laughs) (laughs) It's very important. (laughs) Very, very important. Um, But no, I mean, I think that when you, you know, it's funny because we've obviously had a lot of alumni involved the last few weeks coming back and reaching out and all that kind of stuff. And it is extremely rare that they talk about any game or any outcome or even anything in a game. Um, What they're usually talking about is something crazy that happened on the road. Like when our bus broke down in the middle of Texas and, you know, we started cooking food for the team at a roadhouse grill that was closed, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, things like that, that are just nothing to do with the game itself. Um, You know, most recently, like I remember that trip we took to Oklahoma state when it was like the hell trip from, I don't even know. That was the most demonic trip ever. Like we were traveling for probably 12 hours and to top it off, we could see the hotel, but we were stuck on a railroad crossing (laughs) and we weren't stuck. We weren't stuck behind the railroad crossing. We were literally on the tracks when the gate came down. (laughs) When was it? Was this recent? Was this Yeah, that was, that was probably like, I don't know, three, four years ago. But like that trip, I was just like, wow, okay, this is going to make me retire earlier. <laughs> <laughs> this will drive me there faster. Um, so I, I know that the, I'm not sure at what point this, uh, this became something that was important to you, but the what drives winning movement with, with mm-hmm. Brett Ledbetter, when did you get introduced to that and, and what made you kind of... I guess, adopt that doctrine, that worldview uh, in the, the later part of, of your coaching career? Um, it's funny that you asked that um, because I think that it's a very similar thing that happens to a lot of people when they stumble upon what drives winning is you feel like you've kind of found your tribe. And I think when Brett and I met, so interesting because we would have never had any reason to meet. It was 
actually through Mark Dignall, who was on Billy's staff here and is now the Oklahoma City Thunder coach. Um, he introduced me to Brett. I would never have met any other way because our basketball world, he was coaching at a youth academy um, for fifth to 12th graders. And I'm a college coach at Florida. So how is that going to happen? Right. Um, but I think that when I first met Brett, I actually was going to see him about a type of footwork system that I thought had carryover for soccer. But actually after we talked and we started talking about this um, character piece that he was instilling into his academy players, that's when I knew this was something that I wanted to do with my team because I'd already been doing it, but just not in a very structured way. And I think he really helped me understand how to, to structure that better. And, you know, we weren't sure with whether that would work in a super hyper competitive situation where people get hired and fired on results because at his Academy, it was just purely development. There were no results involved. They didn't play. Um, It was just a developmental Academy, but I think um, what we found and what tons of coaches have now found through what drives winning is a way to pursue uh, greatness at the highest level, but not to lose yourself while doing it. You talked about learning from other coaches and how important that's been to you throughout your career. I know there's a ton of really high profile coaches that are involved in in the What Drives Winning movement. I'm curious, coaches that you've met through that, that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise, and and who surprised you? Who showed a side that maybe you wouldn't have expected based on what you observed from, from afar? Well, I will tell you, I've mentioned him already, but um, Tim Corbin at Vandy, you know, when you see him compete with his teams, like he is a hard nosed competitor. I mean, that guy gets after it. Um, and then when you get to know him and his wife, um, they're just the nicest people on the planet, you know, and, and um, I love the fact that he has this teacher's mentality and has a classroom for the Vanderbilt baseball players every single day um, prior to going out to practice. You would, you know, the, the success that he has had in terms of sustained success is pretty amazing. Uh, You know, Brad Stevens didn't really surprise me. Um, I really admired him when he was at Butler. So to get to meet him when he was at the Celtics was pretty cool. You know, there's so many coaches too, but like these are like known coaches, but there's coaches like that are just amazing coaches at the level that they're at. Um, There's people that are like, uh, there's a youth softball coach, uh, Susie Williamson, that I am just so impressed with the way that she runs her program. Um, there's these two guys that coach high school and middle school, um, basketball and softball that are like amazing coaches. So it's like, I just feel like you can learn from literally anyone on any platform, um, just because of the way that they handle themselves in that competitive arena, because there is definitely a dark side to sports. If you let it go there, um, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of pressure, And I think watching people handle that at whatever level they're on is really inspiring to me. You know, oddly, that very serious topic is pretty prevalent in this new Mighty Ducks series. Have you watched it on on Disney Plus? I've heard that it's really good. Have you watched Ted Lasso? That's my question. Of course. Yes. 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 But I have heard the Mighty Ducks is amazing. Uh, I want to watch that. The, I mean, the, the idea behind it is that the Ducks are now the bad guys because the Ducks have become what the original ones were railing against, which is this idea of you have to be elite and you have to be brutal. And it's all and now but now they've made it very, very modern with all the kids on the Ducks have the parents that are, you know, pushing them like crazy and you have to win or you're not going to get into a good college and your future. So they've taken a pre 
it's actually it's a pretty serious subject, I think, in, in youth sports today. And they've packaged it in a you know, family friendly thing that kids can enjoy. But it also really addresses what does it mean to compete and why do you compete? What's most important to take from that? Oh, I'm, I'm definitely putting that on my list. You know, yeah. I've watched Ted Lasso four times. Four um, times? Yes. Wow. <laughs> the first time I just watched it for entertainment. And then every time since then, I've just watched it for like I've picked up new things every time. But the beauty of Ted Lasso for me is that um, he doesn't know anything about the sport <laughs> at all. <laughs> and and so he has to coach the human. And I think as coaches, like we get so caught up in the sport experience, like the sport itself, like the X's and O's. And we think we can solve all our problems with the X's and O's when our players will tell us if we ask them that 90 percent of the problems have to do with if not. 99% of the problems have to do with the human related issues. And um, I think it's so interesting. Like I've, if we could all coach blinded by our sport, like Ted Lasso does, we would be so much better coaches. Um, but it's just so hard to take your eyes off the ball or off the action when you know the action. And to me, that's what makes that show so interesting is that um he can't, he can't coach the X's and O's. So he ends up coaching the individuals with terrific results. Ted Lasso is the most unlikely entertainment success story, maybe in history. I mean, it took, this is such a thin concept. They built this off of a minute long ad 10 years ago for the premier league on NBC sports. And they've made it this unbelievably not only is it really funny, it's profound. I mean, what you're saying is so true. It's really, and I think it's affected people in such a way because it came out during a time when there was so much negativity and despair. And it's just this unbelievable ray of sunshine that also, as you noted, has important lessons you can take from it. It's, It's crazy. There's no reason that show should be as successful as it is. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan. I, I want to be Ted Lasso <laughs> <laughs> in your in your next life. Um, you know, in terms of stepping away, I, you see so many legendary coaches. I will call you legendary. You don't have to. You don't have to say anything. I just know that. Just know that it's there. Um, it's so hard to leave at the right time, right? It's the it's a challenge so many have had over the years, and very few of them get it right. When did you start thinking? the road would end for you and how did you get there? You know, I'm so glad you asked this question because what I have found through this process of leaving is that there's no resources for this. Like, how is this possible that all these coaches have come and gone and there are no resources to help you understand the best way to do that? I feel like someone needs to write a book called like leaving well or something. (laughs) (laughs) Retirement. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's challenging. So I guess back to the original question of how did I know? I don't know that it was just like one day, like, oh, I need to retire. Um, I think it was a combination of events. I think it was, you know, playing through COVID was really challenging. Ask any coach um, the exhaustion level and the concern level and being having to pivot over and over and over again. There was a fatigue to that like no other. Um I think also the pandemic made you realize like what was really important because everything was sort of laid bare when you couldn't really leave your house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many things that are somewhat flexible about a coaching life. And there's so many things that are absolutely inflexible. Um, you know, if I can't do anything in the fall, I can't go to weddings. I can't, you know, go see the fall foliage. I can't <laughs> go to the U S open. Like there's nothing right. happening in the fall that I'm going to be at. 
And so just thinking about some of the things that Celia and I wanted to do together that we couldn't do while I was still in this coaching rhythm, I think the, the pandemic helped sort of get that into focus. Um, I also think that there is a certain level of emotional energy, at least in my experience, that coaching requires. And it's a lot. It's a lot of energy. It's like 24-7 all the time. And, you know, I think if you find yourself sort of um, having to work to get there day after day, um, then it's time for someone who doesn't have to think about that to step in because that's what a team needs and deserves. And I don't want to ever shortchange a group of athletes, um, because my energy is waning. Um, mm. and so I think it was kind of a combination of those two things. Um, Celia had had hip replacement surgery, um, in November. And one of the things we want to do is this, this really long hike in Spain. It's like five weeks. There's no five week period in the coach's life ever. You know, Um, so it was just kind of a combination of things. But then I think the second part of that question is really interesting is about like, it's how to do it. Like, when is a good time? And I don't know that there's an answer to that because when I left Barry, it was right after we had won a national championship. And you would think this is a great time to leave. And it was super hard. Mm -hmm. And here I'm leaving at a time where, you know, COVID is still happening. And is that the right time? You know, um, we're a year away from having a brand new building for soccer at Florida. Should I try to wait that out? And at one point I kind of juggled that in my mind. I'm like, I should not be making life plans based on a construction schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think, um, I think the hard part for me was just trying to make sure that I did it in a way that was um, that was helpful to all involved. And so what I tried to think in my mind was like, okay, think of all my constituencies of people. So like people I worked with at the UAA, my current team, our alumni, um, recruits, like all that kind of stuff. Um, they're all going to be thinking, how does this affect me? And I'm, mm. I'm thinking in my mind, well, how do I address this so that they feel okay with how this affects them? And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I went about laying the plan to make the announcement. Um, I think the biggest challenge in leaving coaching is the recruiting piece. You know, um, we had a kid commit to us about two weeks, maybe not even two weeks after I'd kind of made the decision in my mind. And on the phone, I'm like, this is a kid we really wanted. And I am very fired up on the phone. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait for you to be a gator. And then I hung up the phone. And I'm like, holy, like this, <laughs> you know, like I cannot do this. Like I can literally cannot do this. Like my stomach felt terrible. And so I think that was another factor that was like, I can't go on. I, I'm, I'm not good at this facade of like acting like everything is going to be fine and I'm going to be here and I'm going to be excited about you coming here when that's not the case. When you did tell your players, I imagine that's probably the most difficult part. What do you remember about that and and the way that that they received it? Well, I remember um, writing out all of what I wanted to say and kind of looking at it and we had practice that morning. So I looked, I woke up at like 430 that morning. We didn't have Mm -hmm. practice until like 10. (laughs) Um, And so I, you know, gone over it multiple times in my head and then we had practice, which was a great distraction. And then at the end of practice, we asked everybody to, you know, meet in our little sitting area. And I was, I, I had the paper in front of me. I do not really remember what happened after that because <laughs> I don't think I really followed my script. Maybe I did. Not really sure. I think I feel like I might have blacked out a little bit. <laughs> um, but that was really, really hard because 
just when I started talking, like just seeing the like the shock on their face, because that surprised me. I was surprised how surprised they were. I mean, I'm not like a spring chicken here. So like I would have like at least some thought that this might happen at some point. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that's when I can't really remember what happened after that, because I think I was not prepared for the look um, when I, so I just started like looking over their heads instead of at them. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole, just imagine everyone's naked, right? The way yeah, they tell exactly. performers I should have done that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, a, a second ago, this, uh, five week hike that you're thinking about now. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do when COVID's over? And it's like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm going to go to a theme park. So this is a testament to how much more interesting you are than I am. Um, but I'm curious what else is, is on that list? What are things that you know you want to do now that you didn't have the ability to do before? Well, one thing um, we'd like to do is spend the summers somewhere cooler than Gainesville. I, I don't <laughs> mind the fall and spring. I'm actually pretty heat tolerant. I don't mind the heat myself um, as much, but... You would have to be at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, but it will be nice to be somewhere in a different locale during the summers, um, which obviously you couldn't do either if you're coaching. Um, I Travel for sure is high on the list and anywhere I haven't been is on my list. I, I love experiencing new things and you know, we have so many alumni like all over the world and some of them are currently playing in different places in the world. And I just think it would be so fun to just sort of, you know, do like a post-college backpacking trip, but instead to places where our players are playing <laughs> Right. and, right. you know, just stuff like that. Like, I, I think I, I really honestly would like to go to the U.S. Open. I'm a big fan of watching tennis on television and I've been to the French Open, um, but I've never been to the U.S. Open. And um, I just think, you know, being able to, to do some things that I hadn't even really thought of, um, that because the space wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So inevitably, I know you're going to do a lot of these things because you, you do what you set out to do. Do you, do you think about after you've done X, Y, Z, all these things I want to do and then seeing, okay, well, maybe I have more energy than I thought. Maybe I, I have this void I want to fill. Does any part of you think that the coaching door would reopen your, for those, you, this is an audio podcast. She is shaking her head vigorously while I'm asking this question. So, but, so you, so. Adam, I have been coaching. I have been a head coach since I was 21 years old. Yeah. Like my entire adult life, I have been responsible for a lot of people and I'm looking forward to being responsible for just me, you know? And, <laughs> and I think that, I think coaching is a, it's a young person's game. Like it's, um, and it's not even necessarily about the energy. It's think about this. When I came to Florida, I was 26. So the players were 18 to 22, not big gap, right? Mm. I'm now still at Florida. Players are still 18 to 22 and I am way older than 26. And so it's, that it's, gap a has, it's a McConaughey situation, right? Yes, yes. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, I think there's some, there's a part of that that's really um, invigorating because it forces you like you have no choice, but to kind of reinvent yourself and to find ways to relate even when the age gap gets wider. Um, but there's also some parts of it that's like, you know, I don't worry about like if a player says to me, Hey, can we have a meeting? And they say like next Tuesday, when I was a young coach, I'd be like, Oh my God, let me think of all the things that they could be wanting to meet about. You know, right. now I'm just like, sure, whatever. <laughs> Cause like, I feel like there's not going to be a whole lot that I haven't already heard. And so I do think in some ways, um, it'll be nice to have like a little bit different 
challenge in, in what I'm doing day to day. And that's going to be, you know, I'll be teaching at UF in the sports management department and still dealing with 18 to 22 year olds, but just in a different role. Right. And I wanted to ask you that one of our, my final things I want to ask you about was this new role for you as a professor Burley, you should just make him call you doctor to say you, you have, I have a doctorate in coaching after all these years. Um, I'll have to get an honorary doctorate from somewhere. Honorary doctor, yes. Uh, how did that opportunity come about? And what do you I mean, what's the curriculum? What, what do you this is a new challenge? What, what is this going to be like? Um, it, it is a really exciting opportunity. So during COVID, I think a couple of things happened. One was um, one of the specialties that was in the sports management or the health and human performance college. Um, the professor left and that left a little bit of space. Um, but also, you know, I've been friends with um, Dr. Mike Sagas for forever. His daughter played soccer. Um, and we've always kind of joked like, hey, when you're done coaching, you know, come teach over here. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be really cool. And it was never real, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think when I realized like that financially, I could actually make the move to do something different. And um, when I was at Barry, this is probably a little known fact my contract was two thirds coaching, one third teaching. That was just the way every coach was structured at Barry. And I loved the one third teaching. Most of the coaches were like, ah, this is something we got to do, you know, but I was like, right. it's kind of fun. And so um, I've always enjoyed that part. You know, I mentioned that my degree was in education as well. Um, so for me, like that's, that's something that I'm really excited about. Hmm. How have you started developing your, your curriculum yet? Is this, uh, what, I have, it's going to be, um, it's all based on the, what drives winning material. So the first class that I'm developing is, uh, what drives winning environments. And, um, here's an ironic story for you. Guess who my TA has been through helping me develop this curriculum. I'm trying to think what would be ironic here. Meredith Flaherty. Oh, wow. Yes. And you know who else is in that college working right now? Shelly Lyle. Oh, so it is. It's coming full, full circle. So I think me and Shelly's office is going to be kind of near each other. So HHP, watch out. You never know what might happen. Have you thought about what your relationship will be like to the program going forward? Because I Mm -hmm. I guess at the moment you don't have plans to leave Gainesville. You're teaching. You're still, I mean, you're still, you'll, you'll be team Florida forever. But have you thought about what it'll be like to say, go watch a game next year in the stands and, and not have that influence over, over those players, most of which will will still be your players. Mm, That's a, that's a deep one, Adam. I know. Um, I I, I promised you, I promised you some very (laughs) deep questions today. You know, I think, it will really depend a lot on um, who is hired. And I've tried to kind of keep that at arm's length for me because that's not my role. That's our administrator's role to make that decision. Um, And I want to be like very, very mindful of boundaries with whoever that is, because I think it is a little bit daunting for me to still be in town because I've been here so long and I would never ever want the next person to feel like, you know, someone's looking over their shoulder. So if that requires me, you know, taking a hiatus from being involved, then I'm more than willing to do that. Um, although I will say that, you know, having reconnected with all these alumni, they're just like, now this is more energy and time you can put into our alumni gatherings. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, Florida, Georgia is coming back. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's going to be tricky. And I would totally um, respect whomever takes the job and their wishes on that. Final question for you. When you think about where the, the women's game is today, relative to where it was when you started in the sport, 
which as you've noted, was a very long time ago. But I don't want to get into years because that that's tacky. Uh, what do you think about where the sport is now relative to, to when you began? It is like light years difference. Like if you just looked on paper without actually seeing game film, I mean, you would see score disparities that were ridiculous. Um, you know, de- defenses are so much more sophisticated now. Um, there's a reason why Danielle Fotopoulos' goal record is still a thing because nobody can score at that clip anymore um, based on the way the game has evolved. Um, but I think what's most exciting about the way the game has evolved, and it's probably not just soccer, but women's sports in general, is that I think people are starting to see the value um, in both entertainment and financial rewards in women's sports. And you see it on our side um, in soccer with like the NWSL angel city is one of the clubs that's coming new to the, um, the league in LA and the, the celebrity um, ownership of that team. And they're trying to make themselves like the premier women's pro sports franchise in the world. Um, mm-hmm. You look at across the pond and you know, the UK, the, the women's league just got picked up by what would be similar to our ESPN um, it's just really exciting to see that there could be potential opportunities for people beyond the college years where you wouldn't need your parents supporting you while you're playing. Mm-hmm. Well, Beg, I mean, we could talk all day, um, <laughs> but I know you have a game to go watch, but this has been infinitely more fun than our three to four minute pregame interviews that we did 100%. For, for most of a, of a decade. Um, <laughs> but it, it's been an incredible run Thank you so much for sharing all this with us today. And, and we hope you are very, very fulfilled with your, your next steps. Yes, I, I know I will be. And um, I hope that we will continue. You know, I can be a guest on your podcast regardless that's, of my coaching. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Always enjoy talking to you. You're, you are one of um, my favorite staff people because, um, you know, you never knew what kind of conversation you were going to have at dinner with you. <laughs> Thank you. That that's all I need. That's all I need. <laughs> I'm Adam Schiff. Thanks for tuning in to this installment of Gator Tales, Gator Greats. <laughs>